As we turn to Habakkuk chapter 3 today, this is the final chapter of the book for Habakkuk. And if we remember when we started Habakkuk, we found the prophet in what we might call down in the valley. And if you aren't in the valley right now, it's because you either just got out of the valley or you're about to go into the valley. That's the stages of where everybody's at. You're either in the valley, just coming out, or about to go into the valley. And the valley is where you become perplexed in your faith, where you might have questions, where you're wrestling with the will of God. Last week, we saw that Habakkuk went to get alone in a quiet place with a quiet heart, waiting and expecting to hear from God while continuing to live by faith. After hearing God's word and seeing God's glory, Habakkuk is finishing his book where he is pictured as bounding like a deer through the mountaintops of faith. His circumstances never changed though. He changed. Or more precisely, his perspective changed. You see, he was walking by faith and living by God's word and no longer depending upon understanding how it all works out. No longer understanding why things are happening a certain way or no longer needing God to explain himself. That climb to higher heights in our walk of faith is not an easy task, but it's much better than living in the valley in doubt and fear and questioning. So like Habakkuk, we must continue in the faith despite the perplexing questions that we face. But we also need to remain honest about them. The problems don't go away by ignoring them, do they? You can't ignore the problem and hope it goes away. We have to be honest with God about it, but continue to hold on to God. And one of the things out of the conference, there was many great teachings, many great little pithy sayings, but I held on to one, and I want to share it with y'all, because if we can hold on to this one, we can endure. When we don't understand what's going on, when we're struggling with what's going on, what we need to do is to hang on, hang on to God until we see what God has for us. Continue to hang on to God until he shows you what he has for you. We have to be willing to experience that fear and that trembling as the Lord takes us through things and he's revealing himself to us. We have to look and see what it is that takes Habakkuk from the valley to the mountaintop summit of his faith. And the title of the message today is Persevering Perspective. It's having a persevering perspective for God's work, God's ways, and God's will that will take you to the mountaintops of your faith. So if you'll start with me, chapter 3, verse 1, it's a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shigionoth. Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. The plague goes before him, and pestilence follows in his footsteps. 
He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in, dis in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear, you march across the earth with indignation you trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck, Selah. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet... I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength, and he makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. For the choir director on stringed instruments. It's a very odd way to end it, but we'll get to that. In order to remain faithful to God and walk around in the theme of this book, remember, is perplexed faith. When our faith perplexes us, when our, when our situation perplexes our faith that we have in God, how do, we, how do we endure that? We need to have a persevering perspective. And that means we need to begin praying for his work. We have to pray for his work. We see in the first couple of verses, it says that this is a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, according to Shigionoth. He says, Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. This is a prayer from Habakkuk, and it's recorded here for us. And I, and I thank the Lord that he has it recorded here for us. It's a prayer according to Shigionath. And that's most likely a musical term that refers to the type of psalm that it is. You see, a prayer put to music becomes a psalm as it's sung. And it's most likely a passionate psalm that has a lot of rapid rhythmic changes. Habakkuk prayed. His prayer is recorded, and his prayer became a song that is to be sung. And I want you to notice that his 
prayer to God did not start with, Lord, here I am, your prophet. Look at all the great things that I've done, and here I am for you. It starts with the Lord. And he says, I've heard the report about you. I've heard about you, God. I've heard the account of you. I've heard that short account of the news. Someone who's, when, when you're trying to share something about someone, you, you don't give them the long version. You give them the short version real quick to kind of pull them in. This is the, I've heard the short account about you. The second line is, Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. He doesn't come and say, Lord, look at all these great things I did in your name. Look at the miracles I've wrought in your name. He says, I stand in awe of your deeds. See, Habakkuk has heard the awesome news of God's purposes for disciplining Judah and the destruction of Babylon. And it filled him with awe. And this isn't like, awe. This is awe as in where we get the word awesome and awful. God's plans and purposes are beyond human understanding. And God's place when standing, if, if you were to take man and God and stand them next together, God's place next to humans is beyond human comprehension. God is so far removed from humanity and in, in his holiness and his awesomeness and his majesty that apart from Christ covering us, we cannot remain in the presence of God. And Habakkuk's response to hearing from God is to fear God and stand in awe of God. A.W. Tozer says, to know God is at once the easiest and the most difficult thing in the world. God has the ability to reveal himself. Not only that, but the truth of it is, is God has revealed himself. The problem starts with the difficulty for God to find someone who is actually ready to receive him as he is, who he is, for what he is. You see, God won't reveal himself to superficial saints, those who are only seeking to experience God in that, in that superficial sense where it's on the outward and it never penetrates inward. God will not reveal himself to those who desire only to sample deeper fellowship with God. Like, oh, I'll, I'll try it out, but only if it doesn't cost me too much. I don't want to have to give up anything for it. I'm willing to, to be, uh, uh, I want a deeper relationship with you, God, but I'm not willing to give up my corporate job. I'm not willing to give up my, my hobbies. I'm not willing to give up my things to have that deeper fellowship with you, God. In all honesty, we are the ones who make it difficult to know God. James the Apostle in his epistle, in James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise in scripture. You can be as close to God as you want to be. He promises, you draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Isaiah 66, 2, the prophet writes, he says, my hand, God, made all these things, and so they all came into being. And this is the Lord's declaration. 
I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. That's who God will look favorably upon, the one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at his word. Habakkuk prayed because he heard God speak. And when we know the will of God, when we, when we understand the will of God, it should motivate us to pray, but not any prayer. It should motivate us to pray the prayer of thy will be done. And so Habakkuk prays that. And his prayer has two requests. The first request is he prays for revival. He says, I've heard the report about you. I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. I've heard that you're going to judge Judah. I've heard that the tool that you're using for judgment, that you will destroy later. He says, during those years of judgment, during those years of discipline, don't let those years be wasted. Revive your work, your work of creating a people unto yourself, separated and holy, those whom you will deliver, those whom you will lift up at the end. Revive your work in these years. He's not saying, okay, God, I'll see you after all this is done because during those times where you're disciplining us, that's it, I'm done with you. He says, no, in those times, Lord, work, do your work, have your work done. And Habakkuk's prayer also shows us another truth about revival. Revival, it's completely a work of God. We cannot force a revival. We can't affect a revival. It's something that's done by God. It's not achieved by man. The only thing that man can do for revival is to cry out to God and plead for it from God. The second petition from Habakkuk goes along with the revival. It's for mercy. Without mercy, there is no revival. And so he says, in your wrath, which his wrath poured out is, is first in disciplining Judah and second in wiping out Babylon. And he says, in your wrath, remember mercy. The idea is this. It's coming to the understanding and knowing that the wrath of God is deserved. He says, in the fact that even though we deserve this God, remember your mercy and send revival. Mercy and revival are works of God and Habakkuk prayed because he wanted God's work to succeed. How many of us want to see God's mercy and revival out in the areas around us, in the community before us, and throughout the world that we are in? We have to pray for God's work to succeed. It's not that our prayer is all of a sudden, God going to go, oh, okay, now it'll work, guys. But it's us being aligned with God, with that persevering perspective to see God's work done. Because when we want to see God's work done, you know what we stop doing? We stop doing our own work. We stop building our own kingdoms. We stop trying to do all the things that would actually divide us and take us away from what God's will is for us in our life. And here's the honest to God truth. This would not have been the work that Habakkuk would have chosen. If you would have asked Habakkuk, hey, uh, Habakkuk, if 
how would you have God restore Judah? Because remember, Habakkuk was crying out. Judah was wicked. Judah was unjust. And he said, how long, Lord? How long do I have to look at this? Why do you make me look at this? And he probably would have said, well, God, just change their hearts. Just make them stop it. Why can't it just be an easy thing? You see, it's the discipline of God that brings people back. It's the wrath of God. It's people understanding that they're under the wrath of God, that they're under the judgment of God, that they, makes them understand that they need to get right with God. Otherwise, they have no reason to fear God. And so Habakkuk, it, it may not have been the plan that he would choose, but he's accepted God's plan. And now he's praying, thine will be done. And Habakkuk acknowledges something. He says that as God once came down to his people at Sinai and established a covenant with them and separated them unto himself and lifted them up, so too would he come to liberate and reaffirm his covenant with them. And that earlier visit in Sinai is referred to in verse three. He says that God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. In Deuteronomy 33, two, it says that the Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. He shone on them from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 holy ones with lightning from his right hand for them. Salah. And we remember Salah from the book of Psalms. It's a reflective word. It means consider what was just said. When you're looking around at the world, when you're looking around at your life around you, when you're looking around at the neighbors around you, the people around you, the church around you, or maybe you're even more introspective than that, when you're looking at your own spiritual life and you're discouraged with what you see there, take time and pray for God's work of mercy and revival. And then also pray not only for it to succeed, but that he might use us. Spurgeon said something that I really, it resonates with me. Whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. James said in his epistle also, he wrote, he says, you have not because you ask not. So let us ask according to the will of God, saying, thine will be done, your work be done. You know, the greatest need today is not complainers. Did you know that? Like the world doesn't need any more complainers, doesn't need any more critics, doesn't need any more people to criticize. You know what the world needs today? Intercessors. The world needs intercessors. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, 16, he writes, and he's speaking of God. And he says that God saw that there was no man. And he was amazed that there was no one interceding. So his own arm brought salvation and his own righteousness supported him. And this isn't saying that because nobody will do that, then God's going to act. And so we should just do nothing because God's going to act. What this is saying is it's revealing God's heart. Remember, it's all about getting to know God and understanding his work and his ways and his will. It's getting to know God. And, and scripture says that God is looking for the man who would stand in the gap for another. Those are the people he's looking for. Those are the people that he wants to use. Those are the people that he wants to work through. Are we willing to stand in the gap? Or are we just another voice complaining? 
To change our perspective, we also need to reflect on God and his ways. And as we reflect on God and his ways, we need to remember, as it said, that his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. He's so much higher and more lifted up. He's holier. He knows the end from the beginning. He, he sees it all. We see a very limited. If we had to compare it, it's, it's like looking through a, a stirring straw compared to God not having any restriction on his vision. We only see a very small amount, very minuscule amount. So Habakkuk helps us reflect on God in his ways. He describes, he says, his brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him. Pestilence follows in his footsteps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kashan in the distance. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. Salah. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. They said Habakkuk is moving on. He's reflecting on the ways of God in which God used sovereign power to deliver his people. When we want to see God's work done, we pray for it. When we want to have our perspective on God, we need to remember that he has sovereign power to bring it about, to deliver his people. And he's primarily remembering and looking back at the past of his deliverance of his people from Egypt. Going back in, in verse three, he mentioned Taman and Paran. Mount Paran is another name for the entire Sinai Peninsula or Mount Sinai itself. Taman is identified with the land of Edom as Taman was a grandson of the ancient descendant of Esau. They both allude to the theater in which God displayed great power while bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. Everything about this stanza reveals the glory and the majesty of God. He describes him. He says his splendor. We don't have a greater word to describe the indescribable God. It's a magnificent quality. It's the entire quality of being splendid. And his splendor covers the entire heavens and the earth is full of his praise. We remember in scriptures where we read that even the rocks would cry out to praise, that, that everything in creation cries out to praise God. It describes his brilliance. It says large, the brilliance is large amounts of a bright white light 
brighter than anything you can imagine, and it emanates from him with rays. That word rays, um, if you're reading the CSB, uh, it might be translated in any other version as horns. And if you've ever drawn a sun that has the little triangle, that's what it's talking about, those rays of light in the way that they look like horns. And what he's describing here is he's saying, when you see God in all of his brilliance, it's like staring straight into the sun at point blank range, except infinitely brighter. And then it describes his hands, the hands of God that conceal his power. And I think this is sometimes where we lose the majesty of God because we remember his hands holding us and delivering us. And we think of his hands as something as, as, as comforting, as something gentle. And, but we forget that his hands have magnificent, marvelous, sovereign power. And his power is revealed in Egypt. Described in verse 5, where it talks about the plagues go before him and pestilence follows in his footsteps. God is fully capable of exercising his might. You see, he is a terrifying God to those who would oppose him. The 10 plagues, not only punishment for Pharaoh's hard heart, but the plagues were also designed and used to reveal the inability and the utter vanity of trusting in any of Egypt's gods. 10 plagues attacked each of the 10 major deities of the land of Egypt. And it was all meant to proclaim this message. God is not a little, feeble, weak, old man, the man upstairs. He's the all-powerful, all-loving. He's grace and glory fused with might and majesty. And not even that can describe him accurately. In Exodus 12, 12, it is spoken. He says, I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. Psalm 78:50 talks about how he cleared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but delivered their lives to the plague. He's describing that God has the right to exercise his might. This verse can also include the judgment sent to Israel when they disobeyed during their wilderness march. Many times as they left Egypt and made their way to the land of Canaan, how many times did they complain against God? How many times did they turn back on God? How many times did God have to take out some of that camp so that the rest can continue on in faithfulness to God? God's glory was revealed in that way in the Old Testament. And it's kind of strange for us living on this side in the New Testament because God's glory is now revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. In John 1.14, the apostle writes, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And it talks about how he is the uh, representation of God on earth. And that word is actually the exegete of the Father. He is the complete and total translation of the Father. And so Habakkuk's vision of God then moves on, God coming from a distance, marching across the land. And then having reached a place where he would execute judgment, God stopped, stood there, and the earth shook under his might. 
the very presence of God shakes the earth to the core of its foundations. A mere glance from God startles the nations, uproots the framework of nature. Mountains and ancient hills are shattered and they crumble to dust. And then it says his pathways. And his pathways refers to his manner, his behaviors, his way of being, his ways. It says his ways are ancient. His ways are not new. As they're describing this, it's not like, oh no, what's God doing now? No, God's doing the same thing he's always done. Those are his ways. That's how he's been. God's everlasting ways go on. And it gives you the sense that everything else is temporary in comparison to God's everlasting ways. Everything else is shattered and destroyed in his presence. Then it goes on and talks about the tents of Kashan being in distress and the tent curtains in the land of Midian tremble. You see, God's appearance as he brought Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus into the wilderness wanderings, that was witnessed by two nations, Kashan and Midian. And they lay on either side of the Red Sea. And God's wondrous acts at the Red Sea caused all the neighboring nations to tremble in terror and distress. Because if you think about it, two million Israelites leave Egypt with such expediency because Pharaoh said, go on, get out of here. You're not leaving fast enough. Take our gold and silver with you and go. And then a couple of days later, he goes, wait a minute, what am I doing? And he pursues them, he chases them, he catches up with them. They're blocked by the Red Sea. They have a, a steep, sheer cliffs around them. They're, they're boxed in, no escape. But God act in wondrous ways, splitting the Red Sea and allowing them to escape. It's talked about. The book of Joshua, when the spies entered into the land of Canaan before they first crossed over the Jordan River, they ran into a, a, a woman of the night. Her name was Rahab. And here's the account. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and she said to them, she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in this land is panicking because of you. Not really because of them. It's because of the God who goes before them. In Joshua 5.1, it says, When all the Amorite kings across the Jordan to the west and all the Canaanite kings near the sea heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, they lost heart and their courage failed because the Israelites... Again, it's not because the Israelites, they had nothing to do with that. It's because their God goes with them. And so Habakkuk is turning his focus now from God's appearance and glory to God's acts upon the earth. And verse eight is kind of that transition period in which he asks in the ode to provoke the reader to think about the implications. There's three questions to consider God's motive for his appearance. Was God showing his wrath at the rivers? Was God showing his wrath at the streams? Was God showing his wrath at the sea? The question being, is God angry with nature? And of course, the implied answer is no. 
God didn't do any of those things because he's mad at the sea. He wasn't mad at the Red Sea. That's not why he split the Red Sea. God was not mad at the Jordan River. That's not why he dried it up. God was not mad at the Nile. That's not why he turned it to blood. God was using nature as a tool to show forth his delivering power. You see, God struck the Nile River with blood, split the Red Sea, and stopped the Jordan River. Because similarly, God would strike the nations, and the motive is to destroy his enemies in order to deliver his people. Notice that. He delivers his people and destroys his enemies. You're in one of those groups. If you're God's people, he's not destroying you. If you are God's enemy, he will destroy you. Habakkuk then goes on to describe God as uncovering his bow. And the bow has always been a representation of a declaration of war, of going to battle, and it, readying it for action. He says, you call for many arrows. And that phrase, you call for many arrows, is an enigma in the Hebrew language. And there is one scholar who claims over a hundred different translations of this phrase. So translation number one, just kidding. We're not going to hit all hundred of those. We're going to cut through all that. And here's the literal translation. The three Hebrew words are sebuat, matat, omer. And it means the staves or arrows are sworn by a word, by a solemn oath. And whatever the translation actually means is not the point. What, what is the point is, after that minor phrase, we find the word salah, which we remember is a focus point, a meditation point. Stop and meditate on this. God's motive, God's majesty, and God's power are seen within his actions in nature among nations against his enemies. He is the one who controls nature. It bends at his will. But he does it for the purpose of being against his enemies. Habakkuk is personifying the mountains in verse 10. He adds that the mountains see God and they shudder. That word shudder, it describes a writhing, a twisting. It's a turning seized with pangs seen in a woman who is in the midst of labor first described the mountains as shaken, and now he's saying that they rise. It says flooding waters move in recognition of God's voice. God speaking can direct the waters. We, we see the same sense of awe at that power of God's voice when the disciples saw Jesus in the boat, and he spoke to the wind and the waves, and they obeyed, and they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? God's power creates great power and upheaval within nature because he stands sovereign. It talks about the sun and the moon standing still in their home in the expanse of the sky. And I'm reminded in the book of Joshua, that there's a battle that Joshua fought in which in order to bring victory to his people, God kept the sun in the sky and did not allow the day to end. And we see it throughout Throughout history, there's societies, uh, civilizations that have that record of the day that where the sun didn't go down. And during that time, there's lightning and hail that rained down near Gilgal. 
That's, that's where it talks about the sun and the moon stand still in their lofty residence. And then the second half of verse 11, at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. How many times did God wipe out the armies with his own hailstones from heaven, fire and brimstone that came down from heaven? The Israelites had nothing to do with that. That was all God. They just kind of stood there and took the victory. Verse 12, Habakkuk envisions God as a giant who marches across the earth. He tramples nations under his foot, crushing them. Is he crushing them just for whatever reason? Is he just capricious? No, it says that he's crushing them to save and to bring salvation to Israel. And like the prophet, we have to be confident. God has done this before. And we have to be confident that God would do it again. God was not vented towards nature. And God was not out to get everybody. God desires to crush wickedness. But wants to deliver his own people. What an amazing thing to consider that deliverance is the idea behind the destruction. Salvation is for God's people. It says, you come out to save your people. And then it also says something else, to save your anointed, to save the anointed one. And I want you to know something, that word anointed one is not a phrase that has ever been used to represent the nation of Israel. The anointed one is God's Messiah, the sent one, the one who he was promising deliverance through. You see, by preserving Judah against all her enemies, God was preserving the messianic line, which he had already given prophecy for. And here's what that says, that God is sovereign to bring about what his word declares will come. If he has promised a Messiah, he's going to preserve the nation of Israel, so that the Messiah can come through the line which he declared it would come. And Habakkuk says that God crushes the leader of the house of the wicked to strip him from foot to neck. God not only destroyed Pharaoh's horsemen who pursued them, God not only destroyed other leaders as well as they went through the land and entered it in the promised land, and if God could do this, then certainly he could do it again to destroy Babylon, Right? And you read the fall of Babylon at the hands of Belshazzar as he sees the writing on the wall and they come in and they take him right then and there. And there's another Salah right here. Meditate. Meditate on the awful end for those who are opposed to God and those who are opposed to God's people. Because those who oppose God, they will be awfully and utterly destroyed. The final two verses in this section, they speak of the enemy being thrown into such a panic that they wanted to destroy Israel, but instead they destroyed themselves. There's many battles that we read about in the Old Testament in which God sent confusion. We, we read about in the book of Judges, the book of Joshua. We, we see where God sends confusion among the battlefield to the enemies of Israel in which they become so confused they start killing each other and Israel's just kind of standing around. I, I guess we wait till they're done. And God receives the glory for bringing the victory. 
Now, I'm going to cover this section again, but um, one of my favorite Bible commentators, John Corson, has an application commentary, and I really love what he says about this section. He talks about, he's saying Habakkuk not only heard a sermon from God, but now he has a vision from God. And there's two schools of thought concerning this passage of verses 3 through 15. Some say it's a prophetic word speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ. They say it speaks about his coming from Taman in verse 3, Taman being Edom. And in Isaiah 63, we're told that when he comes again, when Messiah comes, he will move through the region south of Jerusalem, through Basra, with his garments stained with red blood. He'll move north toward Jerusalem in power and glory. John Corson goes on to say, others view it historically. They say it speaks of the descent of God to Mount Sinai where the law was given and then charts the movement of God in the Old Testament historically as he came down with the law for the people. In addition, it charts the movement of his people as they wandered through Midian, through Taman, over the mountains, through the Red Sea on their way to the promised land. And that's the way that we looked at it right now. So which is correct? I know I taught it historically, but I'm going to agree with John Corson here that the prophecy that is prophetic concerning both the coming of Jesus Christ and the historic accuracy concerning the Old Testament movement of God and his people. Because I believe that the Lord is saying something here. I agree with what John Corson summarized it as. He's saying, Habakkuk, look back and see how I have worked. Then look ahead and see that I am coming. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to do that. We need to remember the faithfulness of God in the past so that we can look forward to the faithfulness and the promises of God in the future. And the promise of God in the future is that his son is coming back again. Jesus is coming back. You see, the result for Habakkuk is this. Through a reminding of the past and a revealing of the future, he's renewed for the present. For us, this passage tells us if we review what God has done for us in the past, we anticipate what he'll do for us in the future, we can have peace in the present no matter what's going on. When you remember the glorious things that God has done for you in the past, you remember that you're going to be with heaven with him soon. And you have a tranquility, you have a stability, you have a peace in your life now. And the last part of our perspective that we need to have is we need to find our enduring strength in the Lord's will. There is no strength outside of the Lord's will. In verse 16, Habakkuk says, I have heard, trembled within, my lips quivered at the sound, rottenness entered my bones, I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, there's no fruit on the vines. The olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength and he makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights for the choir director on stringed instruments. Habakkuk is witnessing the amazing, awesome display of the power and glory of God. And as any other person would, in the face of all that, he's left in a, moment, in a gaze of awe. The description given is that he's trembling. He's trembling so bad his lips are quivering. 
his bones, the rottenness entered my bones. That talks about how he didn't even have the strength to stand. He couldn't stand up. His knees were knocking. It describes one who's entered into the true wisdom that can only be found at the fear of the Lord. It's the wisdom talked about in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, now Habakkuk understands. Doesn't understand necessarily what God is doing or why or any of that, but he understands who God is. And he knows that's where his strength is, is in whatever that God, his God, wants to do. And in that understanding comes a patience and a quietness in Habakkuk. You see, Habakkuk knows without a shadow of a doubt the day of calamity is coming. It keeps marching forward. But instead of fretting his day of calamity, he says, I'm waiting for that promised deliverance of the Lord in which the Israelites would once again be delivered from bondage out of Babylon and brought up and lifted high as the Lord's people once again. And don't miss the picture here. Don't miss the prophet's weakened physical state. As he stands before God, he's weakened in a physical state. But as he considers the awesomeness of God, he's strengthened in the spiritual state. In order to be strengthened in your spiritual state, your flesh has to be weakened. That's why Paul tells us we have to battle against our flesh. We have to crucify our flesh because only in the crucifixion of our flesh can our spiritual state be strengthened and emboldened and empowered in the will of God. He's imagining the worst outcome, the consequences of complete ruin. He says, though the crops don't produce any fruit, though there's no food in the land. He says, though there's no animals in the pen, there's no meat. He says, I'm ready and I'm willing to trust God. It's the same thing as saying, I don't care if the stores and the shelves at the stores are empty. I don't care if they take away all the farmland. I don't care if they take away all the animals. I don't care if all the food sources go away. I'm ready and I'm willing to trust God. You see, like Habakkuk, our enduring strength in God's will requires that we learn that our peace does not depend upon our circumstances but upon our God. Habakkuk says, yet I will celebrate in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. You see, Habakkuk's not like, I'll I'll complain all the way through it, but I'm still with you, Lord. I'm going to continue to complain. I'm going to endure, but I'm going to do so in distress. Habakkuk is making the choice to rejoice and celebrate in the Lord despite the distress. Because God is the God of my salvation. Joy is available to everyone, even those stripped of everything. Because joy is not found in things. Joy is not found in situations. Real joy is found in a person. Jesus, the God of our salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like those of deer, enabling me to walk on the mountaintops. The unfailing source of strength and confidence necessary for satisfaction and contentment is 
satisfaction and contentment in the sovereign Lord. That's why he says, Lord, my Lord. First Lord is all caps, Yahweh, covenant God, my God, Lord, Adonai, my master. The one who gives me my orders, the one whom I'm submitted to. The strength he gives is like the power found in the feet of a deer or a gazelle or any of those other animals that just, they, they just bound over the mountaintops, don't they? Have you ever watched them, how graceful they are? Like, if I tried to do even half of what they did, I'm tumbling down the mountain, that's it. But in the strength of my God, I can just joyfully bound through the mountains through any difficult circumstances that this life can throw at us. Never losing a step, never falling. More than that, like the deer, positively dancing, leaping on the hills, full of life. The prophet declares, God will set my steps that firmly and lively also, and I trust in him, and he won't allow me to slip and fall. I get to do more than merely plod along. I can skip about with life and joy. This is what Jesus said. I came to give life, life more abundantly. Not the abundant life of like what others teach out there. This is the abundant life of knowing peace, tranquility, strength, endurance, perseverance and deliverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Habakkuk knows that this God of majesty and power is not diminished because man faces difficult trials. Sometimes we get trapped in that mindset, right? We go, if God is so great and powerful, how come I'm going through a hard time? Why is this happening? What did I do to deserve this? We need to become like Habakkuk where we know that that's the wrong question, the wrong attitude. And instead, we need to change our perspective to a persevering perspective that says, I know you, God, you are strong and mighty. And if we are in desolate circumstances, you have deemed it necessary and possibly deserving to us. Yet I will praise you still. And even more than that, I will rejoice in you. Rejoice in the Lord, the joy in the God of my salvation. Desolate circumstances like he just described where how do you find joy in the fig tree that doesn't produce figs or the vines that have no fruit on them or the fields that are empty and the flocks that are gone? You see, he can still rejoice in the Lord because the Lord, unlike those fields and unlike those things, the Lord is unchanging. And Habakkuk, he's not just practicing positive thinking. That's not what this is. You can't just pretend like there are no problems. I'll give you a case in point. The weeds in my yard. I can't just pretend that they're not there. I can't just say that problem's gone. It's not going to go away if, with positive thinking. The weeds in your life, they're not going to go away with positive thinking but you can still find joy by turning it over to the Lord and going and rejoicing in him. It's that you're not going to get rid of the problems in your life. But what's going to happen is you're going to begin to see those problems for what they are and remember that your God is greater than them all. You see, Habakkuk couldn't rejoice in his circumstances. He's about to face this destruction coming from Babylon. Maybe you're in a spot in your life where you can't rejoice in your circumstances. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. Rejoice in your God. 
who's sovereign over those circumstances and through those circumstances. I'm reminded of Paul's admonition to Christians in 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pray for God's work and God's will in your life. And Habakkuk discovered that God was his strength. And God was his song. And God was his salvation. And therefore, he had nothing to fear. When you know God is your strength, your song, and your salvation, nothing will cause you to fear. Isaiah 12, 1, the prophet says, On that day you will say, I will give thanks to you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you've comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. And I will trust in him and not be afraid for the Lord. The Lord himself is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. All the way back in Exodus, the Lord is my strength, my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Even in the, in the Psalms, the psalmist writes, the Lord is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. You see, though the prophet's lips were trembling and his legs were shaking, he burst into song, worshiping. What an example. And it's not an example that's just here for Habakkuk. Our Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he, when he was headed to the cross, he first sang a hymn. Paul and Silas in the Philippian dungeon were singing praises throughout the night. You see, God can give us songs in the night if we trust him, if we see his greatness. We might even be able to say that praise is our strength. But be careful with that because if by his words, life, or heart, a man lives to praise his own achievements and his own resources, those are his strengths. If by words, life, or heart, one praises a person or an idea, then those are his strengths. We demonstrate that the Lord God is our strength when we praise him. And I believe that's why this prayer ends with the instructions to the chief singer on stringed instruments. This is a song to be praised and sung to the Lord Jesus. In that, the wrestler becomes a worshiper the wrestler with the will of God becomes a worshiper to God. The sobber in their circumstances becomes a singer to God. And so will you if you follow the example 